Hello, everyone. Today's episode is on the great mystic, saint, and doctor of the church, St. Catherine of Siena. The first part of this episode, we will discuss in a storytelling fashion some of her miracles, some of her life events, and then later we're going to get into her biography, as well as how we can incorporate her, her knowledge, and her mysticism into our spiritual lives. This was really fun to record and write, even a little uncomfortable to write, so I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Siena, Italy was a crooked town, but not crooked in the way of vice or greed. In fact, it was a town full of pious and honest people. It was crooked, however, because the way it rested between the sprawling hills and the towering churches and buildings, it gave the illusion that the entire city had a tilt to it. This was especially noticeable in the Middle Ages, as the jutting church towers cast shadows on the street merchants, and combined with the sloping and steeping of the cobblestone roadways, it could give even the most well-traveled outsider vertigo. And there amongst this tilted scene was little Catherine Benincasa with her slightly older brother, hand in hand going to run errands for their parents. This particular journey had the duo going to the local church to give the priest a donation so he could light a candle to St. Anthony. And as they trekked back home, Catherine would stop to admire the flowers. She would look at the sweets and breads within shop windows and ask her older brother a hundred questions, as little sisters often do. Her joyful nature led to her family nicknaming her Euphrosyne, which was Greek for joy and also the name of a great saint. As the two walked and chatted, her brother stopped to speak to a merchant. He thought it would be a nice surprise to bring back fresh-baked bread to the family. Being older, he knew the stress that his mother was going through while little Catherine was fortunately too young to realize it. And as her brother bartered with the street merchant, Catherine decided to play one of her favorite games a game she often played at home where she would see how many stairs she could leap over in the time it took to repeat one Hail Mary. She played this game on the small 12-step stairwell that was adjacent to the merchant, which then also led up to the busy, bustling town square, which, like most of Siena, was overcast and seemingly tilted by the clock towers, the hills, and the villas. Hail Mary, she began, jumping back and forth. Full of grace, she continued. Blessed are you. And then the clock within the tower rung, and within the loud gongs of the bell, she also heard the wings of startled birds flap overhead. Pausing at the top of the stairs, she looked at the many birds above her, but something in particular caught her attention in the sky. For in this already tilted-looking skyscape, her little eyes were drawn to a faint outline. This was not a cloud. She knew clouds. She would spend hours with her siblings gazing up at the clouds. This was something more. And the more she stared, the more concrete that it became. The outline in the sky soon took on the shape of a man. His facial features became more clear. 
color began to be painted upon his body. His robe was white and red. His beard was brown. And a glowing crown of gold was across his head. She knew this man. She knew him well. The man in the sky was Jesus Christ. And to his right and left, in the same fashion, like an illustrator sketching his art, two other outlines appeared and they slowly came to life. She knew the man on the right, tall, bold, carrying keys, as St. Peter. And to the left, the man towering with a sword and book was St. Paul. Then a third outline manifested and was painted into view, a younger man holding a cup of wine, looking at Christ lovingly. It was John the Apostle. Christ was moving his lips. But what was he saying? Similarly, what is it that Catherine was feeling? Why has it seemed like all time has frozen? This startled little Catherine, but she wanted to hear what Christ was saying. What is it, Lord, she said to herself. I cannot hear you, Lord. If only she could hop up higher on more steps powered by the Hail Mary to reach the voice of Christ. About to cry, she begged in her mind, I can't hear you, what is it, what is it? And just as she felt as if she was going to scream and cry out of fear, out of beauty, and out of frustration, she felt a tug at her arm. Catherine, Catherine, are you all right? Let's go. I have the bread. Mother will be angry if we are out too late. Catherine, her eyes still towards the sky, which now was empty aside from clouds and sun, she told her brother, Oh, if you had only known what I had just seen, dear brother, you would have left me there to stand forever. Her brother then looked at his peculiar little sister, gave her a confused smile, and then walked her home down the cobbled, crooked streets of Siena. What was Christ trying to say to little Catherine? While she could not hear him then, the great Catherine Benincasa would certainly get close enough to the mouth of Christ to not only hear her Lord, but to receive his kiss and relay his message to us all. This is another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue, and this is St. Catherine of Siena. As a Mantellate's sister, Catherine didn't live in a convent, but instead she lived in a small home with a dozen or so other religious sisters. Catherine didn't quite fit in with her housemates. 
Many of them were older and widows while Catherine was only in her early 20s. From a young age, ever since the vision in the town square, Catherine had promised Christ that she would remain his beloved and seek the love of no man here on earth, for she knew only Christ could truly bring her soul joy. Catherine's wealthy parents at first did not take too kindly to this, but after experiencing her patience and even being alongside Catherine during some of her visions, they finally relented. Her patience and her love of God, even as a young girl, was known throughout the villages of Italy, largely because she would be known for going into ecstasy during Holy Mass, which caught either the admiration or the annoyance of fellow churchgoers. And now, as a religious, her sisters knew of her patience and ecstasy too. But they especially knew of her patience. Due to the tasks that Catherine chose, tasks that the other sisters usually ran away from, Catherine took them on with grace and zeal. One of these tasks was nursing back to health the most difficult of patients. Catherine took on those who the other sisters grew tired of or in most cases were too contagious or whose condition left the patient stinking and vile. One particular evening, Catherine was tending to a rather difficult patient, a woman who was covered in cancerous sores, many of which required lancing, meaning Catherine had to then drain the pus and blood of the wounds into a bowl of water. Though the woman who had been maddened by her illness, she was pestering Catherine for taking too long, cursing at her, admonishing her, just to see if she could get a rise out of the nun who had a reputation for her virtue of patience. But when Catherine failed to take the bait, it only further angered the woman. When Catherine was done and sweetly said her prayers over the woman's wounds, she seethed. And in a final attempt to upset Catherine, the woman got up, and as Catherine was about to turn away to return home, she took the bowl of pus and blood, and with a twisted smile, she poured the bowl and all of its contents right on top of Catherine's feet. Before you go, sister, do you mind cleaning that up? Catherine smiled and nodded but then got on her hands and knees and began to mop up the mess. Mentally, Catherine was not affected by this, nor was she spiritually, for her beloved Christ had taught her virtue, and she was engulfed in his love. But physically, that was a different story. While her mind and spirit could handle cleaning up this vile mess, her body simply could not. Catherine felt herself gag, she felt her stomach gurgle, and she began to cough and spit, something she just had no control over. Despite love and tranquility resting in her mind and her heart, her stomach could just not handle the stench, and her eyes could not handle the disgusting mess that she was currently wrist deep in. Catherine threw up in the bucket she was using to clean a few times, but ultimately she cleaned everything to perfection and hurried out of the patient's home. Catherine walked down the road quickly, back to her home with her housemates, holding her stomach and trying not to vomit again, but she could feel it rising in her throat. She prayed to Jesus to free her from this feeling. Her body was going cold and sweat was dripping down her forehead. 
As she finally entered the entryway to her cell, she dropped to her knees, gagging and coughing, but thanking God that she was now home. But what was that in front of her as she laid on the floor? But two feet, both with holes in them, and she looked up to see her bridegroom, her beloved, Jesus. She rose up to a kneeling position with hands clasped. She pointed her eyes upward to the risen Lord, and in his hand, he was holding two crowns. In one hand was a crown of a queen, was filled with jewels and precious stones, and in the other hand, a crown of thorns. My beloved, you had called upon me on your way home, so here I am. But tell me, would you be willing to wear this crown of thorns here on earth so you can then wear this crown of jewels in the afterlife? Or would you rather wear this crown of jewels here and now and suffer the crown of thorns for all eternity? What will it be, my child? Two beats of silence passed before Catherine replied. Place upon me the crown of thorns, my Jesus, she said to him. And at that moment, he placed the crown upon her head. and He pushed it down. Until drops of blood stung her eyes, she opened her mouth to scream, but not a sound came out. And although she felt pain, she also felt love, a fire-filled love, one that she could only describe as purifying, like a refiner's fire. From then on out, though invisible to everyone else, Catherine could always feel and even see this thorny crown on her head, and it remained that way until she died, presumably when it was replaced with another crown a crown of jewels. Despite being a young woman and a third order religious, Catherine began to grow a following of both men and women who saw her as their spiritual mother. Even her spiritual directors, priests of the Dominican order, would see this young nun as their spiritual mother, too. On one evening, Catherine sat with her confessor, Raymond of Capua, and one of her spiritual children. Topics began to arise in conversation about how to pray and how God wants us to pray, as well as Catherine's experiences of God, which she was usually very closed about, aside from speaking privately with Raymond. It was during this lively conversation that Catherine went into one of her states of ecstasy. As she began to speak, Raymond, her confessor, grabbed materials to write down what was being said. Here's a summarized version of what was said as God himself spoke through Catherine of Benincasa. I have told you before, my daughter, that the way to me is through a bridge a bridge that reaches from heaven to earth. I have made this bridge through the union which I have made with man, whom I formed of the clay of the earth. Now, learn that this bridge, which is my only begotten son, has just three steps. 
of which two were made with the wood of the Most Holy Cross, and the third still retains the great bitterness he tasted when he was given gall and vinegar to drink. The first image we see on this journey of the bridge are the feet of Christ. If we are to look at these feet, which I know you have seen for yourself, my daughter, you will see the wounds of the nails that pierced them, reminding you of the sacrifice that my son made. However, in meeting the feet of my son, like Mary Magdalene anointing them with her hair and tears, we are to repent for our transgressions and dedicate ourselves to him in an act of love and sacrifice. The next image and step on this bridge, my child, is where we encounter the heart of Christ. Through his side wound, which was pierced and flowed, purifying water and blood, we will find his most sacred heart, a heart of love. So on your journey to me, take refuge in this heart. May it be like a cell in which you can find safety from all the horrors of the world. The heart which lives in the chest of my son will also nourish you as a mother's breast nourishes a child. Through this nourishment you will find self-knowledge, knowledge of your true self, not the self painted by the sin and darkness of the world, no, but your true nature as a child of God. Then the final stage is encountering the face of Christ. For no man has saw my face and lived, but yet through the incarnation you can lay your eyes on the face of God in the person of my Son, Jesus Christ. The mouth of Christ forms words of instruction. In this stage of the journey, words of wisdom that will keep you safe and in union here on earth. Where you will also kiss the mouth with the kiss of peace, which will invigorate you with ecstasy and union. Though these same lips spoke the words, I thirst on the cross, and thus in this stage you must help quench the thirst of your Lord through bringing him souls alongside your own, through showing others love, just as my son has loved you. Catherine then arose from her ecstasy and fell into the arms of her confessor and her spiritual child, both of which were very pleased to hear the words of God once more. Catherine was walking again to the same troublesome patient, the one who had thrown the bowl of pus, blood, and water on the floor. After receiving the crown of thorns from her beloved Christ, she felt more confident and peaceful about this visit, though she was still nervous about this often troublesome woman. When Catherine had walked in, her patient was sitting up in bed, but something was different. Something had changed. There was a lightness in the air, previously was so heavy every visit. And the patient who Catherine had always seen with a permanent scowl was smiling. The patient greeted Catherine sweetly, graciously even, as if this was an outward but subtle display of regret over their last meeting. But same as usual, Catherine met her warmly and began tending to her wounds, filling the bowl of water with the pus and blood of each sore that she had lanced. Unlike the last encounter, the woman thanked Catherine and even held Catherine's hands as she prayed over the wounds. Though, 
when Catherine went to dump the bowl out, that feeling arose again. The cold sweats, the churning of her stomach. She looked into the bowl full of red, yellow, and white. The smell was almost visibly leaping off the surface of the putrid water. I must wear the crown of thorns, Catherine said to herself. God, if I continue to see the suffering of others and their bodies as vile, then I cannot be the servant that you want me to be or the one that I have promised you I will be. So my God, I will overcome this bondage. Catherine then lifted the bowl to her face and then to her lips, tilting her head back liquid hit her tongue and her mouth and she felt herself start to gag but she remembered that this was to help her overcome her obstacle to God and then as she later recalled the pus and blood tasted as sweet as honey fresh from the comb later that night she had reached her cell as she prepared for bed, she was met with light and warmth that filled the room. Standing in the doorway was Christ, though this time not dressed in robes, but dressed in a loincloth with his bloody hands and his bloody feet and his bloody side on display. He approached Catherine and said to her, Since you so courageously drank the bowl from that woman today, as a sacrifice to better serve my children, I want to invite you to another drink. Catherine looked up and saw blood and water pouring from the wound at Christ's side. Prostrating at his feet, she asked for forgiveness for her transgressions and kissed the wounds, thanking him for his sacrifice. Then sitting up, she approached the wound at his side the wound in which blood poured forth from his pierced heart. And with an open, thirsting mouth, Catherine placed her lips on the wound, drinking and lapping up the blood that poured forth. As she entered into a state of ecstatic bliss, Christ said, Take this blood, the same blood that saved all humanity from the evil one, the same blood that purified my father's people, creating a new garden of Eden. Take this blood and drink from it, and may the blood that pours forth from me, my daughter, now surge through your veins and pump through your heart so others can feel my love too. Christ then stood Catherine up, bringing her into a strong embrace, kissing her face, quenching her thirst, satisfying every need that she had, for the only desire she has ever had was to feel the embrace and the kiss of her beloved God. And through that moment, through the lips of her bridegroom, the mystical bridge was complete for Catherine of Siena. This simple, humble nun, on behalf of her beloved, would later work tirelessly to establish more bridges to the divine that would resonate in the hearts of many and lead all of us straight into the arms of Christ so that we too may feel his gentle kiss.
Peace be with you and with your spirit. Welcome to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue, and I am your host, W. One common attribute when looking at the lives of the saints is that we often see them speaking about how unworthy they are, how sinful they are. And one could envision that this is some creative hagiography by authors, or they could even see this as the saints being overly pious. However, that's not the case at all. These saints, and you see this in St. Catherine of Siena, who we are talking about today, but you see it in Therese of Lisieux, you see it in John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, so on and so forth. This isn't because it's fake piety. Rather, it's because they have had a glimpse of God's love. They have seen how immense and unfathomable God's love is, how deep and how powerful. And in that moment, in that experience, all they can say is, I am not worthy of this. And I think this is best seen in the life of St. Catherine, a woman who did so much at such a young age. And yet, despite all she did, despite her closeness with God, she still remained in awe of God's love and God's mercy. So first, we're going to start with an overview of the great St. Catherine, then move into some of her miracles, and then move into how we can incorporate her teachings into our own spirituality and spiritual practice. So Catherine Benincasa was born in 1347 in Siena, Italy, and she was born to wealthy parents. In fact, she was the 25th child of her parents. Not all of them survived. However, there's this recurring theme in her, in her biographies where it's often said that she was the only child, though, that was nursed by her mother. And this is actually an interesting fact. We might wonder why this fact keeps recurring. And it's because, and I'm totally jumping ahead, but it's because this theme of nursing is really important in the St. Catherine of Siena story, actually. So if you just listened to the opening story, I told the rather grotesque retelling of St. Catherine drinking a bowl of pus and blood. That is the most popular retelling of that story. However, there are many other retellings of that story in which rather than her drinking from the bowl, she is actually drinking the pus directly from a woman's breast who has breast cancer. And after she sucks the blood out, the woman is cured. The same things happen. She still goes and gets the crown versus the thorns. She, at the first meeting, she's very sick, and then the next is when this happens. So she's either drinking a bowl of pus and blood, or she is directly nursing from the breast of a cancerous woman and curing her. Now, why am I speaking about all of this? It's because after that episode, she now nurses from the side of Christ. And now we see nursing as taboo. We shouldn't. We see breast as sexual. But back then, Nursing and breast were a sign of motherhood. They were a sign of nourishment. 
That is also why we have St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was said to have nursed from the breast of the Virgin Mary. So you have this theme of nursing and nourishment, and that was really what inspired and motivated Catherine her entire life, was to get nourished by Christ. And we see that from the very opening lines of any of her biographies about how she was nur- the only child to nurse her mother's breast. And it's just an interesting play on that theme. All right, enough about nursing. So she had visions of Christ from a young age. The story I told in the opening is the first one she had. She was in the market square and she saw Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John in the sky. And from that point on, all she wanted was to be a bride of Christ. And this is a very medieval concept. Of course, this is from the Middle Ages. But this imagery of being a bride of Christ, it comes from the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is the most written on mystical text out of the Bible. And it's a story of a bride and bridegroom. The bridegroom and bride are seeking one another. And in that story, the symbolism here is that the soul is the bride and God is the bridegroom. So this is really what she wanted. She wanted to be a bride of Christ. There are other smaller stories about her devotion as a child. One is how she was going to light a candle at church to St. Anthony as a request to her mother. But she was so enamored because she entered this state of ecstasy. She stayed not only for the mass, but masses throughout the day. And another story discusses how her father walked in while she was in prayer only to see a white dove perched on her shoulder. And when her father shook her to wake her up, the dove flew away, and Catherine had no recollection of what happened. She was in this state of bliss. And her parents, even though they were devout Catholics, they wanted their daughter to be married. And this was largely due to social status and also practicality, because if you marry your daughter into a good family, then you are often also welcome to that family's resources. So their money, their food, their livestock is now partially yours as well. But like many saints, Catherine wanted to remain a virgin. And as I mentioned earlier, she wanted to remain a bride to God. Now, many people see the topic of virginity in Christianity as being very anti-sex. And I do think that's how our modern society approaches it. But if you were to look at how women were treated in early Christianity, young girls were basically sold off into these arranged marriages. So to push back against your parents and societal standards and to say, no, I'm going to be a bride of Christ, a bride of God, this is an act of defiance towards the patriarchal views of the time. It's less about sexuality and more about having autonomy over your own self and own body. Now, now this isn't to say that Catherine remained a virgin purely out of defiance. It was a true devotion and urge to be united with God because she saw God as the ideal rather than a man. And Catherine's parents, they went out of their way to change her mind about this at first. She, they wanted her to become married. In one instance, her older sister tragically died during childbirth, and thus her parents wanted Catherine to marry her sister's husband so they could remain in good graces and continue getting those family resources. But Catherine relented 
ends, they kept trying to find her new suitors. In one episode, her mother decided to treat Catherine like a maid in hopes that she would just want to get out of the house and marry someone else to leave. Though Catherine saw this opportunity to serve her family as if she was serving the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the saints themselves, she ended up delighting in serving them. She enjoyed serving them. And when her mother saw how sweetly she performed these duties, she started to lay off on pushing Catherine around a little bit, but she still kept trying to marry her off. And Catherine became so distraught over this that her body started to break out in welts and rashes. And she eventually decided to cut off all of her hair so that no man would want to marry her. Around that same time, Catherine would run away to live as a hermit, and this was only for a few days. But she had various visions of Christ and the saints. One vision had Catherine visited by all of the major saints who had founded holy orders, so Dominic, Francis, Benedict, and others. Catherine asked them which order she should join, and at that moment they all vanished, except for St. Dominic, who invited her to join him. She would later join a Dominican third order called the Mantellates. Now, a third order is essentially an order where you take the vows of the religious order, but you don't fully commit to religious life in some way. For instance, the Mantellates, they didn't live in a cloistered convent, and they could live out their vows in their own homes. Though the Mantellates in this era were still quite similar in vows to other Dominican sisters, other than living in a convent, they still took vows of chastity, service, and obedience. But the Mantellates were best known for their service in helping the sick and poor, which was very important during this time because it was the time of the Black Plague. And as I alluded to in the story, Catherine was by far the youngest in her local order. Most of them were widows. Just as an aside today, third orders still exist today, and if you feel called to live the charism of a religious out in the world, but you still want a family and a career, these are are really good options. I talk about this a decent bit on my Patreon. So, Catherine had these visions of Dominic, and she would later join the Montelates. Her mother tried to tell them that her daughter was too beautiful and worldly, and she would be a terrible nun, And then the Montelates would visit her to see and make sure, but they saw her with her cut hair and her eyes swollen from stress and her stress rashes, and they they begged to differ. They said, no, she's not too beautiful to be a nun. Though most of all, they were struck at how this young woman was so devout and so radiant. They walked in while she was praying and almost had a glow about her. So Catherine would join the order, but she would still live at home at first, and this was common. And at this time, she was becoming known in her community as this pious young woman. She garnered a reputation for being a friend to the poor, giving them whatever she could. In one scene, she even gave a homeless man her undergarments during a bitter winter. The man was not satisfied, so he asked for more. So she took him to the family home, and she ransacked the place, giving him her father's shirts. He needed more, and he said, well, my friends need help too. So she ransacked the house and gave her father and her brother's jackets. He thanked her, but he said, well, it's still cold, so we're going to need something else. So then she gave the man the linens off of her own bed. And later that night, she was awoken by a man next to her bed, glowing, wearing her father's shirt, her undergarments, his pants, and holding her bed linens. And 
This was Jesus, and essentially it was a test. She would also give away the family's food while her family was ready to confront her about this and say she was going mad. Her father stopped them, and her father essentially said that we are now part of Catherine's journey, and whatever Catherine wants, we will do as well. Eventually, she would move into a home with other sisters in which she became a nurse during times of plague. And she was assigned a few spiritual directors and confessors, each of which were really enamored by her connection with God and her visions and her bouts of ecstasy. Her most notable confessor was Raymond of Capua, who would, would later write her biography. And another interesting point was all of her confessors and all of her spiritual advisors were Dominicans. Dominicans in Italy. If you're familiar with church history, the Dominicans were the guys who would later be behind the, the Spanish Inquisition. So these were the, the dogs of the church, the Pope's dogs, as they would say. These are the garters of doctrine. And these confessors still really saw something in young Catherine, her ecstasy, her mystical experiences. Instead of brushing her aside, they, they took her seriously, which I think is very important. And during this time, various miracles started to occur around her. She even brought her own mother back to life after praying over her not to mention healing the sick and casting out demons, all of those things we know and love saints for. And because of this, she began to amass all of these followers, and she'd begin traveling and preaching about how repentance can be had simply by fully loving God. She was very humble with her prayers, with her miracles. She always gave glory to God. And we're going to get into some of her miracles in a bit. And she amassed such popularity that emperors and even the Pope, Pope Gregory IX, started becoming admirers. They would really work with her and seek her counsel. She was also notably a very prolific letter writer. And this is interesting because she was uneducated, but it said she had scribes write her words for her. But it's still notable because she still had this deep eloquence and this understanding of God and scripture and even theology for an uneducated woman in the Middle Ages. There are many stories of theologian monks going to expose her as a fraud, only to be taken back by her knowledge of faith, but also her humble and loving demeanor. Many of these academic monks who would seek her out to prove her a fraud would later become her followers. Towards the end of her life, a schism broke out in the church between Avignon, France, and Rome. The papacy had moved to Avignon, and Catherine was argent about it going back to Rome. And I think there were all sorts of visions where God told her to bring it back to Rome. So there was a big controversy here. There were some popes and anti-popes going back and forth. And Catherine spent her final days in the court of Urban VI in Rome trying to reconcile peace between France and Italy. She would later suffer a stroke, which would limit the use of her legs and then later she would pass away at the age of 33, the same age as Christ. And her final words were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, which were also the final words of Christ on the cross. In regards to her legacy, about 81 years after her death, she was made a saint. So in 1461. And then in 1970, she was declared a doctor of the church, the day after Teresa of Avila, making her the second woman doctor of the church. And she is one of the most, if not the most, influential women 
not in just medieval mysticism, but medieval Christianity. She was a messenger of emperors and even the Pope. Remember, she is a woman in her 20s when women were often forced to marry off and not have any say-so in public affairs. So why did she become a doctor of the church? And it centers on her best-known work called Dialogue. And this was translated by her secretaries when she was in states of ecstasy. And Dialogue is just that. It's a conversation between herself and God the Father in which she spoke, in which God, rather, spoke through her and her secretaries wrote down what was said. And I find it interesting that Catherine had this very personal relationship with God in the form of Jesus, which we'll get into in a bit. But her most notable work wasn't about Jesus, it was actually God the Father. We also don't have many saints at all, really, that have visions or messages from God the Father. It's often from Jesus or an angel of some sort. So Catherine's very unique in that way of communing with the Father. So dialogue and then also her, re- her letters really show her mysticism and really helped propel her to a doctor of the church. And her confessor, Raymond of Capua, he penned her biography, which only furthered her place as this great mystic. So in regards to her miracles and her mysticism a little more, the most well-known story, as I discussed previously, was this drinking from the side wound as well as drinking and curing the woman with breast cancer. And like I said, there's a theme of nourishment there. And she had a deep, deep, deep devotion to the side wound. I have a Patreon series on the wounds of Christ and their devotions, and in this St. Catherine of Siena week, I will be doing an episode for Patreon just on the side wound. But there's a lot there. The side wound, of course, is where God or Christ's love poured forth because the side wound is where Christ's heart was pierced. So the nourishing blood, which also cleansed us, poured forth from the heart like his love pours forth. Though there is also the image of of birth as well from the side wound that you see a lot. You don't really see that as much in Catherine. You see it in Julian of Norwich and, and some others. And another mystical experience that I did not talk about is her betrothal ceremony to Christ. So this is when she has an actual full-on wedding to Jesus in which he gives her a ring. Now, in the writings of Raymond of Capua, her confessor, he describes the ring as gold and full of jewels and only Catherine could see it. However, many artists and legends state that the Ring was made from the foreskin of Christ. So how did we go from ring of gold to foreskin? This comes from a letter that Catherine wrote in which she speaks of the mystical marriage one can have to Christ. And she says that in this marriage, you will see that Christ died for you. And when he offers you a ring, it's not a ring of silver or gold, but a ring of flesh. She then goes into the blood of Christ and how his first drawn blood was at his circumcision, giving us a ring of foreskin. So there's that kind of tie-in. But most of her writings, regardless, was that the ring was invisible and she could only see it. And like I said, there are numerous other miracles and there are volumes full of these stories. They're just kind of the key ones is one, the circumcised ring and then to the crown of thorns which was given after she drank or right before that episode where she drank from the, the side wound of christ and if you look at some of the most popular images of catherine of siena she's looking up 
and she has her crown of thorns on. That comes from when he gave her the crown of thorns stigmata, and she's looking up in those images because she's looking up at Christ as he places the thorn on her head. And this is also interesting because she is one of the only saints that had the crown stigmata and only the crown stigmata. You have St. Rita who only had one thorn, but Catherine of Siena had the whole crown. There's also another really interesting one where she went into ecstasy and her, her soul descended into hell and then to heaven. And she was doing this to barter for the soul of a young prisoner in which she successfully did. So she went and bartered with the devil and then with God to bring the soul to heaven rather than hell. So what should we know when approaching Catherine of Siena. So unlike Teresa of Avila, Catherine didn't give us much of a path or a process. She did give us the mystical bridge analogy, which I discussed in the story portion, and we're going to get into that in the next Catherine episode a little more. But she more so spoke of her dialogue with God, and she gave us great advice in those letters. She is very much a saint of her time, yet still she has such great wisdom for today. There's two parts to that statement. First, let's talk about her being a saint of her time, but relevant today. Another thing I'm going to get into next week is the shadow self. We hear the terms shadow work, shadow self in various areas, whether that is the psychotherapy area or even, honestly, some of the occult folks. We talk about shadow work. You see it in, over there. And Catherine of Siena actually spoke upon the true self quite a bit. She described God as a gentle mirror of the soul. And through prayer and contemplation, we pick away parts of this false self and remove that grime so our true self or our true soul and all of its original glory can shine through. So I think that's beautiful, as well as this process of the mystical bridge and this journey to God. I think that's also lovely. And it also mirrors some other saints during that time, like Bonaventure and Bernard Clairvaux. But when I say a saint of her time on the negative end, I'm talking about flesh mortification. Flesh mortification is when we make a penance or a small sacrifice to God. So fasting is a flesh mortification, though during the Middle Ages, it was much more extreme, and we began seeing things like self-flagellation, um, wearing certain materials that draw blood, so on and so forth. And Catherine likely died due to her austere fasting. Today, we say what she had was a form of holy anorexia. It does have a medical term, but that's the casual term for it, which is anorexia not because of aesthetics or we want to look a certain way, but rather to please God. So, of course, this is a disordered form of thinking, and it likely sped up her death, unfortunately. And this was even extreme back then. Her confessors, her friends, her followers, they, they tried to get her to eat, but eating only made her more sick. And the irony, though, is that in her letters, she recommended her spiritual children take care of their bodies. And even though she was doing this mortification, she was still able to travel and preach and all of this. Though, like I said, this likely did have a large part in her having a stroke at such a young age. And why am I saying this? 
Because when you do read her work, you're going to see a lot of the medieval austerity, which I think is really interesting and fascinating, but of course, not very practical. And that's also a common theme that you'll see is that the saints who did this austerity often recommended that their followers do not. You see that in St. Francis of Assisi, where in his final days, he asked God to forgive him for not taking care of brother body as he should have. Regardless, though, her work is still very, very approachable. You also have some medieval language around sin and dirtiness, which also is a sign of those times. But if you keep reading, it's all centered around a theme of God's love. She said the best way to repent is simply by acknowledging God's love for you and pledging to love him back. She also gave a lot of practical wisdom that's approachable by many, especially in a time of deep monasticism, which typically only had the monks and the nuns being privy to spiritual direction. So a great saint, and next episode, we're going to jump into that true self, gentle mirror of the soul, as well as a recap of the mystical bridge. And I'm probably going to tie some of that even back to Teresa of Avila and some of what we talked about in the mystical prayer episode. All right. But what many of you are probably listening for, how can I incorporate Catherine of Siena into my own spirituality? Let's talk about that. Her feast day is April 29th, so this will be going live a few days before that. She is a patron for those ridiculed for their piety. She's said to have gone in states of ecstasy, and she would leave the church covered in bruises because the angry church ladies would kick her because they thought it was a show. She's also a patron of the sick, sick in general. Anyone that's sick, if you're sick, whether that's something chronic or just going through an illness, she is there to help you and assist you in recovery and pray for you in recovery. She's also the patron or a patron of nurses due to her work as a nurse. And then, interestingly enough, she's a patron against fire. And this is goes back to a story where in a state of ecstasy, a candle caught her habit, her dress she wore as a nun, but it never set fire. Instead, it just danced on her clothing, which is also indicative of the Holy Spirit. Also, her patroness-ness, I'm making up words, against fire, um, it also has to do with against negative passions, right? The fire of greed, the fire of lust, the fire of anger, the fire of jealousy, so on and so forth. As a contemplative nun who lived her life in a balanced way, she can assist us there as well. So, W, I am looking to do a novena to St. Catherine of Siena. How would you recommend that I decorate my altar? How would you recommend I go about this? Great question. Let's see. And this is totally off the cuff. I did not write this down beforehand. But here's how I would do it. I would decorate my altar fairly simply. She was a simple saint, of course, imagery of Catherine of Siena. If you do have a crown of thorns laying around, believe it or not, many Christians do decorate their home with those during the Easter season. That would be appropriate. I would do flowers as well just because I, I feel that she's a sweet saint and I just like flowers, to be honest, on my altar while doing novenas. 
And there probably aren't going to be many pre-made Catherine of Siena novena candles. You're likely going to have to do a white novena candle with a statue or an image of her next to it. So as far as things to do during this novena, of course, if you're unfamiliar with novenas, I have a lot of resources, but there's probably better resources online. Find a prayer that you like. I will be writing my own St. Catherine of Novena prayer to share on Patreon, but there's millions out there for you to choose from. So while also doing the novena, what I would recommend is meditating upon Christ's passion. Primarily, the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary or the seven sorrows of Mary, because Catherine, she bore the wounds of Christ, the crown of thorns, the stigmata, so on and so forth. So I would certainly recommend during your novena to really focus on that. And when I say focus, I mean meditate. And when I say meditate, I mean when you are focusing and meditating, (laughs) what do I mean by meditation? And I use the word meditation. What do I mean by this? What am I trying to ramble at? What I mean is when you go through the mysteries, when you meditate upon the mysteries, put yourself there. Put yourself in those scenes. Imagine yourself carrying that cross. Imagine yourself being crucified. But imagine yourself with Christ going to hell to defeat that so you can resurrect. Talk to Christ. Talk to Mary during that meditation. Talk to St. Catherine. Ask St. Catherine to accompany you in this meditation. And that might seem too visualization. That might seem too even new age. But what I'm describing is just Ignatian prayer, really, which is imaginative prayer. Another interesting area that I would recommend exploring during novenas is writing letters. I love doing this. If you look at my altar, you will see that under my St. Joseph statue, there is a pack of a stack, rather, of paper These are all letters that I have written while in prayer, while in meditation, and it's requests or thanksgiving to God that I put under my St. Joseph statue so he will deliver those messages to Christ. And as Catherine was a prolific letter writer, I recommend doing the same. You know, every night after you say your rosary after you say your novena prayer write a letter write a letter to saint catherine asking her to bring forth your message to god and then lastly any saint that has written a book end your novena with that or that could be your whole novena honestly pray your novena prayer and then sit and read i do this all the time with saint john of the cross as i've been writing this season i've been lighting a candle to the saint I'm writing about and reading their book at the altar with them. So read dialogues or read another book about her, which I will include in the show notes and in the episode description. So those are three very simple ways to approach Catherine of Siena and just a wonderful saint, an incredible saint to have by your side, both for the practical as well as the mystical. And before we end in prayer, Please remember to check out next week's episode where we start getting into her mysticism a little more. We're going to get even more deep into the mystical bridge and how that's a really piece of practical advice for our prayer and meditative life. We're also going to get into this gentle mirror of the soul, which I think is a very, 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 very underappreciated part of Catherine of Siena when we think of 
the false self versus true self, we think of Carl Jung, we think of Buddhism, but we rarely think about Christian mysticism, but it is right there in many saints, but especially Catherine of Siena. So make sure you check that out. All right, let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear God, you gave us such incredible saints, so we too may know how to please you. As your son said, God is always with me because I do what pleases him. Catherine of Siena also did what pleased you. And therefore, through her intercession, allow us too to please you. Through her work, through her writings, allow us to go beyond this dirtied, world-wearied image that we have of ourselves so we can shine more fully. Like her, allow us to be open and welcome to the most poor, the most sick, even those who treat us terribly. Allow us to go through the crown of thorns that you give us with grace and peace as she did so we too can know what it's like to also wear the crown of jewels. St. Catherine of Siena, pray for us. Thank you for listening to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue. I hope you have enjoyed. And remember, the best way to penance is by sharing his love. God bless you.